Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. To succeed in investing, you need to get the big decisions right, but the details matter too. Today, we explore 10 underappreciated aspects of stock markets that, while seemingly trivial, can greatly affect your returns. We'll look at everything from index construction to valuation measures to platform fees. And in today's dumb question of the week, why do global index funds use market cap weighting rather than GDP? Okay, let's get into it. It's taken us two years, but we finally are using an SEO optimized title, Roman. 10 things they don't tell you about stocks. The danger is that people are going to think we've gone clickbaity, we've gone buzzfeedy, and we're going to say something like, you won't believe number seven. <laughs> Isn't that what they say? <laughs> you won't believe number 10 because that way they have to listen to the end. Yeah, keep them hooked. That's right. So what's number one? What are we kicking off with? Price-weighted indices suck. Now, this is something I rant about all the time. The problem with these indices, and they include things like the Dow Jones Index in the United States, the Nikkei 225 Index in Japan. The problem with these indices is that the price of a stock is not very indicative of how well that stock's doing. The reason being that market capitalization is a much better measure. That's why we use that for almost all other indices. So, for example, the S&P 500 is market cap weighted and you love it. But the Dow Jones Industrial Average, you hate it. Exactly. And the reason why is that if you want to look at the amount of share capital that's been generated by a company, you look at the number of shares which are available to freely trade multiplied by the share price. And that gives you the market capitalization. And that's a kind of good measure, I think, of the value of the company. So with a price-weighted indices, what's that doing then instead? So let's say that there's a stock which increases in value by, I don't know, 100%. That's going to disproportionately increase the value of that company in the index. So let's say we had an index which had NVIDIA in it, and NVIDIA has gone up by 1,000% over the last year, say. Well, that's going to disproportionately push up NVIDIA in the index itself, even though the number of shares listed might not be very large. So that's why something like Apple is much bigger than NVIDIA in the S&P 500. It's worth $2 trillion, whereas NVIDIA is worth much less. So these price-weighted indices, the basic problem is they're not scaling the companies based on which are bigger and which are smaller. Yeah, I just think that's a really misleading measure. So why do so many analysts on TV and in the newspapers still talk about the Dow Jones? You see it quoted all the time. It's been around for a long time. So sometimes when I'm desperate for a long time series, I will use the Dow because it goes way back until, say, 1930, 1940. And those price returns are really useful. I think the reason why market cap weighting became more popular is because computing power increased. So it became much easier to work out market cap and it became automated. Whereas when everything had to be done by hand with an abacus or whatever, then it wasn't practical to do the calculations in real time. Yeah, you just want to add up the stock prices and go, I'm done. <laughs> this, is some, this is my index. Yeah, it was simpler, I think. But anyway, look, nowadays, market cap weighting is where it's at. And we've got these dinosaurs that people still quote. And people have kind of retrospectively calculated what the S&P 500 would have been, right? Way back into history. Yeah, Robert Schiller's done this, and he's done it back to 1870. And he makes that freely available on his website for Irrational Exuberance, his book. So you can work out what they would have been. I'm always a bit wary of whether those are real numbers, but still, 
people have tried. And yeah, if, if it's a market cap weighted index, I just think it's much better representation of what's going on. Okay, so I guess that's warning number one is choose your index carefully. And it kind of takes us on to the second thing, which is about how the stocks within an index actually perform. So our second nugget of wisdom is that most stocks underperform their index. Okay. And what's the upshot of that then? What's interesting here is that different people paint this information in different ways according to their biases. So active managers will say, well, you need us in order to find those special stocks which are going to outperform because they're very rare. Whereas passive investors say, don't look for the needle in the haystack, buy the haystack. This is John Bogle's famous quote. Yeah, I'm sure we've all heard that by now. And when you say most stocks underperform the index, is it a noticeable effect or is it just slightly below average and you've got some that's slightly above average? I suspect not. It's actually staggering. If you look at a study which was done by JP Morgan Asset Management, what they did was to track the value of stocks in the Russell 3000 index. This is the kind of mega index for the US, which includes absolutely everything, small caps, mid caps, large caps. And then they tracked the value of stocks over their entire lifetime from the day they were issued to the day they were delisted or merged or died in some other way. So it's like the lifetime return of the stock. And the typical stock, the median stock, underperformed the entire market that it was part of, the Russell 3000. And not just by a little bit, it underperformed by minus 54%. So if you're just randomly picking stocks, or not so randomly, if you're an active manager, the chances are you're going to pick a loser. Just based on the probabilities, right? Most of them are losers. Absolutely. In fact, two thirds of the excess returns, returns above that of the Russell 3000, were negative. And 40% of all the stocks had returns that were negative in absolute terms. In other words, the IPO price was above the price when they were delisted, which is pretty shocking. Given all this, it is a miracle that index funds work, right? Yeah, the way I think of it is kind of like a relay race in which stocks, which do incredibly well, do all of the heavy lifting. And it's this huge right tail of hugely positive returns, excess returns above the index, which really pushes the index upwards over time. Now, the key thing is, the reason why the relay race metaphor is a good one is that the people who are at the lead of the race change over time. They hand on the baton to someone else. So it's like you've got the 4 by 100 meter relay and even if you've got these really slow people running the first three legs, you're handing the baton to Usain Bolt <laughs> at the end and he's going to win it for you. And you've got all the active managers alongside you running backwards. And when one Usain Bolt eventually retires, there's another one to take his place. So it's like a continual relay race that goes on forever. We're stretching the metaphor here, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, you said this is a great metaphor. You reviewed your own metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> But this extreme right tail, everyone sees it. And the trouble is that if you're an active manager, you'll pile into those current leaders of the race. And eventually, by the time that most people pile into those leaders, there's someone else about to take the baton from them. And we don't know who that's going to be. So clearly, I go for the passive approach. And I think that's probably the best way to get the winners. Well, however you construct your portfolio or your index, it is important to understand how that performs over time. And this is where I think a lot of people get tripped up around the different kinds of averages. And our third point is actually that when you're looking at compounded returns, what you need to use is not the 
normal average, as we might think in maths. It's the geometric mean. Now, I'm going to have to leave this to you to explain, Robin. Well, the thing is that any kind of return is compounded because when you have the previous gain, you compound based on that previous gain. And you have this kind of avalanche effect in a good way, which is that the amount of money increases over time geometrically. And geometric growth, you have to treat in this special way. Yeah, you can't just say, I've got three years of returns, first year's 10%, second year's 100%, third year's 50%, and take the average of those three percentages. That doesn't really work. It doesn't work at all because you don't compound based on the previous gains. And that's exactly what stocks do. And that's part of the magic of investing in stocks long term. So you'll often hear people talk about CAGR, which is the compounded annual growth rate. And it simply means that you take the nth root of the compounded values over time, which sounds scary, but it's actually pretty easy to do. Yeah, we could all do that, Roman. (laughs) But what's the upshot of this? Is it that people are sometimes overestimating the performance of their portfolio or their forecast performance into the future because they're averaging numbers that shouldn't really just be averaged. Yeah, that would be misleading if you did that. I don't know if people do that mentally, whether they look at the historic returns. For example, often on a fact sheet, you'll see this is the return for 2012, 13, 14, 15. Yeah. And mentally, you'll be thinking there's some kind of average. Oh, people definitely do that. And I think that would be misleading. You've always got to be careful when someone says, this index or fund has returned x percent over the last 20 years like what percent is that they're actually talking about and i think just saying whether it's annualized or not is often misleading you know if you haven't said this is annualized that will make a colossal difference so just make sure that when people do quote these numbers you understand which one that they're quoting and talking about numbers when we move on to individual stocks a lot of people really focus on the price to earnings ratio, the PE ratio. I mean, we do. It's probably the number we quote more than anything else on this podcast is the PE ratio. But it does have its flaws. What's point number four, Roman? The PE ratio does not factor in a company's debt. Hmm, seems important. Debt's a big thing. The reason why is that if a company is loaded up with lots of debt, you could make its PE ratio look more attractive than it should be. So what people use as the numerator, the thing that goes on top in the fraction for the P part, is instead of using the price of a company, you use the enterprise value. And the enterprise value is just the market cap plus the debt? Minus the cash. Minus the cash, okay. But it's kind of a fuller picture than just the market cap. And it kind of makes sense because if you're going to buy the company, you don't want a company that's loaded with debt because you'll pay for that. You do want a company with lots of cash because you get the benefit of the cash once you buy the company. So this is roughly what you'd pay if you're a company thinking about acquiring another company. Plus, it's got things like pension liabilities in there as well, which you also want to think about usually. If they've got big pension liabilities, that could be a problem. So enterprise value is probably a good way to look at the valuation of a company. So you take enterprise value and divide by EBITDA, which is the earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Yeah, it sounds technical, all of this enterprise value divided by EBITDA, but you do see it quoted a lot by people more on the professional management side. Yeah, fund managers use this all the time. They prefer EV over EBITDA, definitely over PE. But the trouble is that all the numbers that you see listed, which are freely available, will be price-to-earnings multiples. 
So is that why we use them? They're sort of the best we can do. Yes. <laughs> right. I mean, if I could, I would use EV over EBITDA, but I just haven't got the data. I mean, it does still have its own flaws, right? It's that the EBITDA bit is overlooking capital expenditures and can disguise something. So we've mentioned before how Charlie Munger didn't like EBITDA. <laughs> he called it bullshit. <laughs> but any of these measures just give you a partial picture of what's going on at the company. Whenever you summarise an entire company with just one number, clearly that's not going to give you a full picture. Yeah, there is no magic number. You can just look at it and go, oh, that's the company to buy. Otherwise, this whole game would be easy. But really what we're looking for is something that gives you a rough idea, just a thumbnail sketch of what's going on at the company and what it's worth relative to what it generates. Because there is another flaw with the P-E ratio, which is that it tells you nothing about company's growth prospects. And that is our fifth point. So what you can do is look at a metric which factors in growth. And here you do something like the PEG ratio, which is the price to earnings growth. So instead of dividing by the absolute value of the earnings, whether that's forecast or historic, you actually base it on the earnings growth percentage. So for companies that are growing very rapidly, it makes them look cheaper. So for example, if you're looking at growth stocks, this might be a better measure of the value of the company. So let's say we've got two companies, same price, $100, and the earnings growth rate of the second company is faster than the first company, 10% versus 5%, then the second company will be cheaper because it's growing faster. And basically you want a lower peg ratio, don't you? Yeah. A peg of one would imply that the PE ratio is in line with the growth. And if you get below one, then maybe you're getting growth at a good price. The trouble is sometimes you get zero growth for a company, so you get infinite peg. So, you know, there are kind of problems with the ratio, but it is something you might want to look at if you are interested in growth companies. And while we're talking about growth companies, there is another thing that's often overlooked, but which does really matter, which is stock-based compensation. This is our sixth point. Yeah, it's definitely something you shouldn't ignore. What really matters to you as a shareholder is that you get a slice of the pie. In other words, if a company is generating profits, that you get the benefit, some of it, and that benefit is not falling over time. And this is what dilution is. Let's say that the company issues loads more shares, then effectively what you've got is less of the company and the value of your holding has actually fallen. So stockholders hate dilution. And one way that companies reward their employees is to give them stock grants and stock options, which are effectively issuing new shares and diluting existing shareholders. And for some companies, especially high growth tech companies, this can be a big effect. And by certain accountancy sleights of hand, you can make these effective dilutions disappear. And that is worrying. Yeah, if you just take a glance at the company's books, often this is invisible to you. And there's a great quote by Warren Buffett where he's talking about whether these stock options should be treated as an operating expense. And he thinks, of course, they should. If options aren't a form of compensation, what are they? If compensation isn't an expense, what is it? And if expenses should not go into the calculation of earnings, where in the world should they go? Yeah, Buffett nails it, doesn't he? And it's interesting that there's a huge dispersion in how much dilution is going on. So if we look in big tech companies, for example, you can measure the so-called run rate dilution over time. And 
It's quite minimal at companies like Apple and Microsoft, where it's about 0.5% per year as a dilution. Whereas it's much larger at Meta at the moment, which is almost 3%. And if you look at the sort of earlier stage internet e-growth companies, it can be a really massive effect. So Lyft, for example, which is one of Uber's competitors, their run rate dilution is over 9% per year. And there is a great blog post by Thomas Reiner called Tech Company Dilution. And he points out that if you've got a dilution of like 10% per year, over five years, you need to see over 60% market cap growth just to offset that dilution. Wow, that puts it in great context, doesn't it? It's not a small effect for some of these companies. And I presume they're doing it to sort of save cash expenditures in the short term. You can see why they offer it as an incentive, because it incentivizes the company employees to do very well, because that'll boost the share price. But from the investor's point of view, yeah, I think there are problems. And if you are a single stock investor, you know, we're not, but if you are, this is something you've got to be really hot on, especially in these early stage tech companies. It can really pick your pocket. And another thing that can pick your pocket, how's that for a link, Roman? <laughs> oh, very good. It's FX fees. So these currency conversion fees on your platform, you might think they're a bit irrelevant, a bit niche, but they vary wildly between different platforms and can really add up. And you have to compound that with the fact that most people don't understand the denomination of the funds that they buy, because I think it is misleading. I get so many questions about this. So on the fact sheet of a fund, you'll see something called base currency. And that might be US dollars. It often is US dollars because a lot of the assets that people buy in funds will be based in the US because it's huge. However, that's not the trading currency of the fund. And that often comes in multiple flavors. So for the same fund, it might be listed on five different exchanges. Zetra in Germany, which would be in euros, the London Stock Exchange, which would be in pounds, and the New York Stock Exchange, which would be in dollars. And that's what you've got to focus on. It's the traded currency. And it'll be quoted in those terms. It'll say the price today is so much in pence, that's in sterling, or in dollars, or in euros. And the reason this really matters is because if you buy it in a currency other than sterling, your broker is probably going to charge you a fair whack for that, like a spread on the currency conversion. And I didn't believe you when I looked at the show notes, when I looked at the number you gave me, which was 1.5% for the non-sterling trades. That is horrible. Yeah. iWeb, I'm looking at you. (laughs) (laughs) Because we always talk about the fees that you pay for a fund. And we're talking about, you know, one basis point differences between 0.12 and 0.14 for a fund. And we're always trying to squeeze them lower. But if you're paying 0.15% or 1.5% on your trades, that's going to hurt you when you buy the fund and it's going to hurt you when you convert it back when you sell. That's the thing. If you just wanted to switch, let's say you no longer love Google, you now want to buy Microsoft, you're paying 1.5% when you sell your Google and then another 1.5% when you buy Microsoft. That's 3% gone in like two clicks of a button. Now, some brokers are now offering the ability to trade in other currencies. So if you keep it in dollars, that wouldn't be so bad. But ultimately, you're going to have to move it back to sterling if you want to spend it. So I think this is a problem. So I always stick to sterling-denominated funds for that reason. 
Because the fund manager, when they convert it, which is effectively what they're doing, they'll do it almost for free. For institutional investors, FX is almost no cost at all. It's not no risk, but it's no cost. Yeah, this is a secret profit centre for so many brokers. But not all are as egregious as that 1.5%. You can get it, I think, for less than 0.1% on some brokers. So the thing is, just go and look what your broker charges if you are buying non-sterling denominated funds or foreign stocks. And some platforms deliberately only have sterling denominated funds available. So for example, Vanguard, unsurprisingly, only has sterling denominated funds. If you trade a lot, you can burn money quickly with this. Yeah, so just watch out. This is the traded currency you've got to look at. The more you trade, the more you'll pay. And that's true of another thing, which is stamp duty, which we pay every time we buy UK stocks. This is number eight. So this is called SDRT, Stamp Duty Reserve Tax. And I think it's terrible because it's a transaction tax. And many people talk about the decline of UK stocks. I think one of the reasons behind it might be this tax. Taking it away would allow much more efficient transactions in UK stocks. And it would, I think, attract people to the market more. So you pay 0.5% every time you buy a listed UK stock, or an unlisted one, actually, but we care about these public markets. There are exceptions. So for example, if you buy an AIM stock, one of these tiny companies which are in AIM, then you don't pay it. You pay a big fee when the company goes bankrupt, though. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my favourite AIM shares. But 0.5%, that's gouging. I mean, it's terrible. And really, it's just a source of revenue for HMRC. I think they get over a billion pounds a year via this tax. I think it's about four billion a year. So that's the thing. You could abolish this tax, but you probably have to find another way to raise that cash, right, if you're the Treasury. But we're not the only country to have transaction taxes when it comes to shares and finance. It's actually quite common. I looked down the list and I'd say most countries have some form of transaction tax. Even the New York Stock Exchange has a transaction fee, but it is absolutely tiny. Brace yourself. It's 0.000008 dollars. So a tiny fraction of a dollar for every sell order. And that's from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Presumably that's how they fund themselves. And there's also a FINRA fee, another regulator, and that's on all covered stock and ETF sales. And again, tiny, tiny amount. $0.000145. But if you look around the world, most European countries have something similar to our stamp duty tax. But I agree with you, like transaction taxes are economically inefficient and it does discourage people. And it's not about greedy bankers. I mean, I think that's the kind of way it's painted. It's not that kind of tax. It's not kind of stopping greed. It's effectively making your pension worthless. So, you know, ultimately, I think this is a disastrous tax. It's a difficult sell to the public, though, for that reason, because you know how it would get painted. Like you say, it's like, oh, we're getting rid of taxes on stocks and shares. (laughs) But really, it would benefit everyone. And everyone is pretty much invested in a pension at some point in their lives. So I think that's the better way to, to kind of sell it if you wanted to sell it to the public. Yeah, it would make sense. I mean, you could make the same point about stamp duty when it comes to house sales as well. It's just finding that revenue somewhere else, though. People don't like it when you raise another tax. But there's an even more niche tax, which we have to be aware of when it comes to our stock dealings. 
So point number nine is withholding tax. Beware. And again, this is one that many people are not aware of, and it certainly affects your income over time. So if you look at a compounded value for your stocks, also your funds, you'll see that funds which don't have this withholding tax will outperform considerably. So maybe we should explain what withholding tax is. This is when you're buying a foreign stock. The country that that stock is domiciled in might charge withholding tax on any dividends that are paid to you. And this is especially relevant when it comes to US stocks for UK investors, because there's a 30% withholding tax. Now, when you sign up for some of these platforms, they'll ask you to fill in a form called W8BEN, which effectively means that you can reduce that tax to 15%. And certainly on some platforms, you can't buy US stocks until you've filled the form in. Yeah, so that's a good way to halve the tax if you're holding the stocks in an ISA or a general investment account. But there's a way to get it to zero, actually. If you hold US stocks in a SIP, due to the double taxation treaty with America, there is no withholding tax. Or at least your broker should claim it back for you. Not all do, so look if they do for you. And this is especially relevant if you're buying US companies which pay a high dividend. In that case, it probably does make sense to keep those stocks in a SIP if you can. But there is another way, actually, which is if you've got a fund and it's a synthetic fund, what actually happens is that you have something called a swap where the counterparty will have a seat on the exchange, the foreign exchange, and they won't pay this withholding tax. But they pay you the returns as if you actually own the stock, although it's actually them holding the stock. So certainly for these synthetic funds, the drawback is that you've got a derivative inside the fund which creates counterparty risk with the investment bank, which has the swap with you. But the benefit is that you don't have any withholding taxes. And this can compound to a huge benefit over time. So people are often scared of these synthetic funds, but I actually like them. You trust investment banks a lot more than I do, Roman. I do. But we shouldn't underestimate the impact that fees and taxes have on long-term returns. It can be enormous which takes us to our 10th and final point, which is maybe the most niche point of this whole lot. It matters how you pay your platform fees. And I was thinking about this one. It's not going to work for me. But anyway, we'll come on to that. But the idea here is that if you've got an ISA, an individual savings account, and you've got a SIP, then the way you pay your fees would be different between the two if you want to be completely optimal about it. If you want to minimise your taxes effectively. Yeah. So when it comes to an ISA, really, you want to be paying your platform fees from your bank account, not from the ISA itself. And that's because, let's say you put the full £20,000 into your ISA in a year, you want to get the full benefit of that tax-free account, and you'd rather than take the fees from just your normal account. And lots of platforms offer this. Vanguard, for example, will let you pay their platform fees as a direct debit from your bank account, not touching your ISA. But it's quite different, actually, when it comes to a SIP. So there, what you would rather do is pay the platform fees from the pension itself, from the SIP. And that's because you're paying it with pre-tax money in that case. And effectively, the government is chipping in a bit and helping fund your platform fees. Kind of. The weird thing about SIPs is that you pay out of your gross salary. Yeah, the money in a SIP is pre-tax, effectively. So you'd rather pay the fees 
from your pre-tax money than your post-tax money. So rather than the government chipping in, I guess you're just not paying the tax on that money. But the point is the same, which is that you're better off paying the fees from the money which is in the SIP. But the reason why I said this wouldn't work for me is that Vanguard doesn't separate out my fee from my ISA and my SIP. I hold both with them. Well, maybe worth a little email to Vanguard Customer Support, seeing if they can separate those fees and where they come from. Yeah, Vanguard. We're always on their case, aren't we? We're always on Vanguard's case. I reckon they might do it for you. Well, let's find out. So we mentioned lots of little things about buying stocks, but I think it's worthwhile bearing in mind the overall picture and thinking what's most important when it comes to investing. I mean, that's what our other 100 episodes have been about, Robin. (laughs) Maybe just remind people. (laughs) What are the big things they got to get right? Well, I think it's always worthwhile having a plan. Remember why you're investing in the first place and be brutally honest about your own tolerance for risk. And if you haven't got a big tolerance for risk, then having lots of stocks probably isn't a good idea. So asset allocation is really important. How much in stocks, how much in bonds. But also keep those fees low, stay diversified and stay safe. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I actually learned a lot of these tips, either by speaking to people directly in our community or researching questions which were asked of me. So if you want to join this information exchange and learn from the rest of the community, you can learn more about that by going to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is why do global index funds use market cap weighting rather than GDP? And this is actually a question that came in from one of our listeners, Gareth. And he follows up by saying, surely GDP growth is a better indicator of which nations have prosperous and growing economies. And given that emerging markets have greater potential for growth, wouldn't a GDP-based allocation be more sensible? Good question, I think, Roman. Yeah, this is a question I asked when I first started as a strategist, because it really stood out that the countries which had large GDP growth weren't usually the biggest stock markets. So let's just go through a list of countries just to get a feel for that. And the first one, which is shocking, is the US, where it makes up about 60% of the global stock market, but its GDP makes up around a fifth of the global economy. Yeah, that is the sort of egregious example of a stock market, which on the face of it is much, much bigger than it should be. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got China, where they make up not that much less of global GDP than the US, but their stock market accounts for less than 4% of the global total compared to the US's 60%. Whereas countries like the UK and France are roughly in line with their GDP share. So the UK makes up about 4% of global markets, stock markets, and 3.1% of GDP. But the question is, why do these numbers diverge so much? Why has the US got such a big stock market relative to the size of its economy? I mean, in theory, there is no reason why the two should be linked. For example, you could imagine a world in which, for a particular country, there are no listed stocks at all. They're all private companies. It is a choice whether you list on a stock exchange. And so theoretically, there is no direct link between the two. Yeah, it's a good point around the structure of an economy. Especially in emerging markets, you might have, for example, the agricultural sector, the farming, making up a huge share of GDP but not really being lucrative enough to grow a stock market. And as you say, you might have massive parts of the economy which just 
aren't available to public investors, either because they're privately held companies or because it's state spending directly. So for example, in the UK, more than 9% of our GDP is the NHS. And that's up from 5% in 1990. So lots of growth in healthcare spending, but you can't access that as an investor. And I think that's one of the problems. If you're a fund manager and you have to match a GDP index in some way, you can't directly buy financial instruments which are linked to those numbers. So I think that's one of the problems. And one of the reasons why asset managers are probably a little bit reluctant to create these GDP indices. Whereas for a stock market index, it's very easy indeed. You just buy in the proportions which the index publishes and you're done. There are examples of GDP-weighted indices. So there's the MSCI ACQUI GDP-weighted index. But I'm guessing not many trackers. Probably not. And it does kind of what you'd expect on the tin. But if you look at the performance, over the last 10 years, its parent index, so just the bog-standard market cap-weighted ACQUI index, has returned 8.5% per year, whereas the GDP-weighted version has returned 5.7% per year, so a lot less. And that's really because it's underweighted the US and overweighted China. Yeah. If you look at the top holdings of the GDP-weighted version, its biggest company is Tencent. And in the top 10, you also have Alibaba and Pinduoduo, lots of these Chinese companies, because it's dialed up their weightings. And Roman, you can tell us that that has not been a good idea over the last 10 years. Oh, not again. <laughs> <laughs> that's basically K-Web. It's put a lot of fun into my fund portfolio, that one. And one thing that really strikes me is when I look at the US and contrast it with countries like China, but maybe even the UK, is how stock market friendly all of the systems are in that society. So US government, the Federal Reserve, the central bank, and a lot of the legal framework in the US is very much geared towards companies and profits. Whereas in other countries, they put people first or at least they don't put companies first. And here I'm thinking about China and they clamp down on companies. Yeah, not all markets are of the same level of maturity, you might say, right? Or valued as much by the people who live in that country and the governments of that country. So the US certainly is very stock friendly and very interested in growing corporate profits. Whereas the UK, not so much. And China, definitely not as much. And the other point is that just because a company is listed on one country's stock exchange, it doesn't mean it only does business in that country. There's so many multinationals out there which are selling all around the world. So I've got some data here from the MSCI All Country World Index as of 2020. And as we said, North America is around 60% of the market cap for the index. But America only accounts for around 30% of the revenues of the index. Contrast to that, emerging markets around 12% of the market cap, but account for 42% of the index's revenues. So this is kind of the point, isn't it? Maybe we shouldn't care so much about where the company is listed. Yeah, certainly compared to the distant past, money sloshes around the planet much more easily. So buying a company that's listed in the US, and even more so in the UK, you're buying something which is multinational. I mean, Gareth made the point about emerging markets and how shouldn't we be allocating more to them effectively because they're such a source of GDP now and GDP growth and population. What do you think about that? Well, if you do that, you're going to be allocating a lot to countries like China, to countries like India, 
And I think for people who are going to be investing for a long period of time, that might make sense. However, there are cases where an entire market falls out of global markets. For example, when China had its revolution, when Russia had its revolution, and literally the value of all of its stocks went to zero overnight, pretty much. So political stability, I think, and governance really do matter. How much can you trust the governments in that country to preserve the rights of equity investors, particularly equity investors abroad? But here's a provocative question to finish on. Is it maybe a red flag if a country's stock market is much bigger than its share of global GDP? So for example, in 1989, Japan's share of world economic output was around 10%. But its stock market had grown to 40% of global markets. And Japanese stocks were valued at multiples way higher than other markets. Was that a red flag at the time? And is the US in that position now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's interesting about the US, if you track its meteoric rise in terms of the size of the US market relative to the rest of the world, it essentially moved up in two legs. One was around World War I, and the second was around World War II. And although it's kind of varied, there was a dip when Japan really exploded in terms of market cap briefly for about five, ten years. But ever since those two big legs up, it's been so dominant. And that's been the case for so long. So really, I think if you were betting against the US, then you definitely would have lost that bet for a very long time. So you don't think there's any sort of warning signs from market cap versus GDP, the buffer indicator? I think it's worth looking at but I wouldn't base a short position or a long position on it because betting against the US is usually a bad idea. But in the Japanese bubble of the late 80s, I think it was one of the indicators that this had just got a little bit out of hand, a lot out of hand. (laughs) You just had to look at real estate prices to see that was the case. So I think a secondary consideration is whether that country is going to maintain its lead and whether its advantage is sustainable. And in the case of the US, I think it has proven to be stable. So I certainly wouldn't be betting against the US right now. If you just look at my portfolio, yeah, it's a global market cap weighted index and I'm 60% US invested. Go USA. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.